book of Romans, chapter 4. I'm going to read verses, actually I'm going to go back a little bit to chapter 3 and read verses 27 of chapter 3 to chapter 4, verse 5. Chapter 4, verse 5. So follow along with me. I'll read Romans 3, 27 through 4, verse 5. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law or system of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Thus far, the reading of God's words, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's holy word. Lord, we come to you this morning and we would ask that you might reveal to us truth from your word. Give us wisdom and understanding. Cause us to love what you love, to believe what is true and in accordance with your word, that we might be built up and strengthened for every good deed. All this we ask by the power of your spirit unto the glory of our holy God. So we pray these things in the name of the Son of God, our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, as we turn again to the book of Romans, it feels like it's been some time, uh, which is why I did go back and read those verses from the end of chapter 3, because I think it is important for us to see the connection between these sections. Now, when I say sections, you need to understand that when you open your Bible, you have these helps... Sometimes they're helpful. Sometimes they actually sort of pigeonhole the way you read and interpret Scripture. There are no chapter-verse distinctions and headings in the original manuscripts. It would be difficult, though, as I've said before, if I get up to preach and I say, all right, turn about, mm, you know, a fifth of the way through the book of Romans, and let's just start reading. Now, um, that might be helpful. Uh, You'd probably get pretty good at it. You might even, in your margins, write, this is where he left off last week, those types of things. Uh, And so when we look at these things, uh, it is important that we are not stuck by the headings and sort of stuck into these little um, trenches that the headings and the verses and the chapters form. Rather, we need to understand that as Paul is writing, and as you're reading books, for instance, um, from paragraph to paragraph, Uh, you can clearly see thematic movements. What's happening in chapter 4 is a a building upon the things that Paul has written in chapter 3. 
that in that last section, that last paragraph in verses 27 through 31, Paul now uses Abraham. And he is saying to the Jews, he doesn't play for your team. He plays for our team. Abraham belongs to us, that is, to the Gentiles. And not the Gentiles as though there's a Jewish team and a Gentile team. In fact, Paul speaks of the inadequacy of the categories of the Gentile approach to salvation by sort of obscuring uh, and, and covering and running from the truth of God and the Jewish self-righteousness, which is essentially saying, I'm circumcised and look at all the good things that I have done. Neither one of those is adequate before God to justify him. But what we must see from the beginning, from the very beginning of God's covenant dealings with men, is that it has, that is salvation, God's favor, and the bestowal of his favor comes by faith, not by works. And so here in Romans, when Paul speaks of Jew and Gentile, he is not speaking of ethnicity. He is speaking of religious system. They were compared and contrasted and their inadequacies exposed in Romans 1 and in Romans 2. And Paul spent a lot of time in Romans 2 and 3 speaking of the inadequacy of the Jewish system, the system of law as inadequate. And what then excludes boasting is the system of faith. And in this way, the law gets you nowhere. Before God, you cannot stand before him and say, look at all the good things that I have done. And what demolishes that system is the system of faith. That operating system is a glorious, saving, effectual operating system. Is what we see in verse 27 of chapter 3, the law of faith or the system of faith. And so what is concluded then is this. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile so long as you have faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ or in the promise of Christ when he had not yet been revealed. And so Paul here turns to Abraham and shows the very covenantal fountainhead of all the promises of God are displayed to be possessed by those who lay hold of them by faith and not by works. So there's three points that I want to make this morning as we endeavor to understand the contrast between faith and works, a system of law and a system of faith. Three points that I want to make. What did Abraham find? What did Abraham find? Second point, not by works, but by faith. Not by works, but by faith. And then thirdly, the rhetorical weight in using Abraham the rhetorical weight in using Abraham. Now, if you'll follow along with me, I'll read again verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? Now here that language according to the flesh means works done in the power 
of human strength apart from that which is given by God. That is, any good works that we can do that are distinct from God's saving grace. Now, you and I are surrounded by people who, though they do not know God, do good things. Now, we need to be very clear uh, what we often mean by good. In fact, in the Westminster Confession of Faith on good works, we need to understand that there are, in fact, no good works that can be done by unrighteous people. Because if it is not done according to the law of God, and in addition to the glory of God, it cannot be called good. And so the only people alive on earth that can do what is truly good are those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now that does not mean that there are not those who are outside of covenant fellowship with God that do not do things that are good for mankind. But those things are not morally, according to the law of God, righteous. Um, For instance, you can find people who are not Christians who go down the aisle and they make vows and they stay married for their whole lives. That's good. In fact, you can find believers who walk down the aisle and do not stay married. Believers are capable of great sin. And and unbelievers are capable of those things that are manifestly good, at least superficially. So when Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? What has he found? Well, Paul goes on. For if Abraham was justified by works or flesh or the works of the flesh, he has something to boast about but not before God. Now, boast here refers in particular to Abram's or Abraham's contrasted righteousness, let's say, in comparison to his nephew Lot. If you take Abraham and you take Lot and you contrast their lives, Abraham is a far more morally superior figure. Now, Abraham was not wholly good, In fact, Abraham was the one who was willing, upon the suggestion of his wife, to sleep with his wife's maidservant in order to have a son, not according to the promise, but according to the flesh. Now, if that were to happen at Reformation OPC, discipline would be involved. Right? You can imagine how that would happen. And rightly so. Abraham, though, in the book of Hebrews, is recorded as a a hero of the faith. But Paul is not focusing upon those things. Paul here is focusing narrowly upon the distinction between works before God and faith. And as it relates to our works, we have no boast before God. You may impress your neighbors... You may get a plaque, right? Kids, one of the things you may often get if you're playing a sport in a Christian school is the Christian Character Award. All that requires is that you are nice and you don't use bad language when you're actually doing the sport. Does that make sense? And oftentimes those things we look at and go... I remember when I got the Christian Character Award because I graduated from that Christian high school years ago. Of course... I'm righteous. 
And it may sit on your shelf collecting dust, and 15 years down the road, your life is very different, and you have that plaque, and you put it in a box because one day when you're transported to glory, you're going to open the box and say to God, see, it says it right here. In 1998, I got the Christian Character Award when I graduated high school. I actually didn't get that award, and I probably shouldn't have gotten that award. There was one who did, and he should have. But the real question is, before God, what do we have? What do you bring? What is your boast? You have no boast. So Paul answers the question in verses 2, and in a moment we'll look at verse 3, that is found in verse 1. What is the thing that, Paul, uh, that Abraham found according to the flesh? He found nothing save God's condemnation. And here flesh speaks not only of obedience of the law, but in particular circumcision. The greatest of all covenantal acts of obedience. How can you be saved if you are not circumcised, the Jews would say. That is the first act of covenant obedience. And that is not part of the repertoire that Abraham was able to bring before God that would give him reason to boast. That is not what is the substance of his justification, verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now, what we need to understand as it relates to all man's status, their natural state before a holy God is that we are like Abraham, old and unable to bear children, metaphorically speaking. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. In fact, before Abram, Abram was Abraham, he was living as an idolater. He crossed the Euphrates River as a kind of baptismal event in his life. He was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans uh, were later going to become the Babylonian Empire, and he was called by God to be a father of a great nation. And all of Israel and the Jewish people looked to Abraham as their father, and they say, see, Abraham was circumcised. You must be circumcised. But what great event in the life of Abraham, what transformative event in the life of Abraham occurred before all of that. Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so circumcision as an act of obedience follows first the circumcision of Abraham's heart. And so what did our father Abraham find? Well, he found nothing by the flesh. What he found in terms of his acquittal, in terms of his justification, comes not by works, but what Paul says here. For what does Scripture say? Verse 3. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So let's look at the second point then I have. Not by works, but by faith. Now, we see this point expressed in a couplet of verses. That is a pairing of two verses. Verses 2 and 3. That is a... You, not a unique, 
but an individual look at Abraham, and then verses 4 and 5 sort of universally apply what we find in Abraham in verses 2 and 3. So that first couplet, verses 2 and 3, the testimony of Abraham's life. If Abraham had been justified by works, then it would follow that he had something to boast about. That is, he could attribute to himself the result of having found favor with God. If that is the case, as it relates to your salvation, what does God add to it? What do you need him for? What is the point? What is the point of atonement? If Abraham could have been justified according to the works of the flesh for, well, not 4,000, but several thousand years before the coming of Christ, what's the point of mediation? What's the point of a Messiah who would come to save us from our sins and his work done upon the cross? Do you see what the system of law does? There can only be one system. It is either the system of law or it is the system of faith. If you and I, dear friends, can make ourselves worthy in the presence of God by our own human ingenuity and strength, not only does it negate the need for mediation, but it also drives God to a place of unrighteousness and injustice. Because he will always be grading on a curve. Because no one is as righteous as I am, right? None of you are. I know you try, but you will fail. Now, you may laugh, but that's how everyone thinks of yourself in contrast to others. Or you're so full of self-pity that you deal with the law in such a way that you're like, ah, I'm just such a wretched person. And you don't deal with your sin because you're just, well, it's too much. In fact, Martin Luther was a great picture of man left to his own devices to deal with the conception, the full weighty conception of the wrath of God revealed against ungodliness. Luther understood that. And this is why Luther would stay in his chambers day after day after day. And he would beat himself. And he would constantly confess every, not just sin, but every weakness. Go back and read the life of Martin Luther. Not just things that he would do, he knew knew were contrary to the law of God, but every biological infirmity. A tummy ache. In fact, his own mentor... And the Augustinian order said, come to me when you actually have something to confess. (laughs) And so rigorous was his fear of God, understanding that he had no boast. He had only debt. In fact, you and I live among a people who, though they may or may not admit it, understand the debt they owe to God as judge if they do not find rest in Christ. I don't often go into bookstores, and I realized how fun they are. I get all my books online. Uh, And I was going with one of my sons to buy a Christmas gift. He uh, was partaking in the secret Santa that all of our kids do together. And we walked into the bookstore here, Books A Million, in Gastonia. 
And the number of books that are devoted to dealing with the problem of sin without actually dealing with the problem of sin, the whole self-help section, is astounding. Now, what's often interesting is you can add to that self-help section the religious sections that don't have the Bible. Right? That's all other religions are. They're all self-help religions. Allah is just a really bad philosophical advisor, isn't he? He has nothing really good to say except you're kind of scummy, but there's really no solution for your problem. And everyone around us that does not hold to the true gospel of Jesus Christ is dealing with this weight. I have something that I owe to God, and there is a lot more in the debt column than there is in the good works column. And everybody you walk among here, especially in this country, are doing whatever they can do to get out from underneath that weight. They will literally disfigure themselves. They will transform their entire identity to try to put their souls at ease with the discomfort that they feel in relationship to the presence of Almighty God whose presence cannot be eradicated from their minds and their hearts. It is only debt. And the testimony of Abraham's life is not work that pays off a debt. It is what? It is the promise of being accounted righteous before God, but not by works, but by faith. For what does Scripture say, verse 3? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, the difference between resting or believing and working is this. When you work for something, you work all day long, and the boss man comes out to the field, what do you expect? Payment. Wages due to your work. And that is a good thing. A workman is worth his wages. But believing and resting is something else. It is, in fact, the antithesis of working. It is to receive something from one who did the work given freely, lavishly, by the grace of the one who did the working. The way we can put a fine point on that is this. When we look at Christ upon the cross and we see the work that he did in atoning for the sins of his people... Our right response should be, that work is the work that I am resting in. I believe that Christ did that for me, and because he did that for me, that will be my plea before the Father. And we have no other plea. There is nothing else to rest in. There is nothing that you can do in addition to the work that Christ has done to make yourself worthy before God as judge. This is the testimony of Abraham. And so Abraham's working, his work, was not for the purpose of boasting. Because Paul here is also not eliminating the call to do good works. He's not an antinomian. It's not just get saved and then move on with your life and do whatever you want. No, it's what? It is that... True saving faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by works. But again, Paul's point here is not that. 
Paul's point is the contrast between works and faith and which is effective to merit, as it were, Christ's righteousness. But even then, it is not faith, is it? Faith is not a work. Faith is not our first work. In fact, there are some of the Pelagian or semi-Pelagian or oftentimes called Arminian camp that says there are no good works until you do that first good work, which is believing. And the reason why it must be for the Arminian a work is because they believe that that faith precedes the work of God in regeneration. All right, that's a lot of theological mumbo-jumbo. Essentially what it boils down to is this. Did Abraham have anything of himself that would count him worthy in the sight of God, either to be chosen or to be counted faithful before God in himself? And the answer to that question is no. Paul deals with that point later on. That is a matter of election. Who is and who is not elect? And it does not boil down to whoever the most attractive candidates are. The decree of election precedes, precedes our own even being made. Romans chapter 9. And so, in verses 2 and 3, Abraham is the case. In verses 4 and 5, we find the universal application. Now, to him who works, now he's speaking about us. To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but debt. Now, to him who works means this. Those who seek by their work to be accounted righteous. If that's how you're living, those works are not counted as righteousness. They're part of the debt category. If you are living according to the system of the law, you cannot be called anything except wanting in righteousness. You do not have what it takes. Don't be one who works for justification. Because your wages are not counted as anything but debt. So what this means then is that for those who are in Christ Jesus called righteous, our wages are not part of our, well, works of super arrogation, which is a Roman Catholic term that means as we are endeavoring to work towards righteousness before God is judged that somehow we can stand acquitted and we want to go ahead and sort of um, shore it up, make it robust. Have you ever seen these little video games that you can play that's like the bridge building game where you have to, with a minimal amount of parts, make a road and then a truck has to drive over and then like a semi and then heavier and heavier things and you have to have built that bridge properly? What we endeavor to do by God work, good works through works righteousness is put as much scaffolding as possible in order to endure the rate of God's wrath. Well, the problem is this. You don't have really any scaffolding. Nothing that you possess meets the weight requirement to endure the heaviness of God's wrath. Right? Okay, so engineer. Some of you may have engineering brains. Maybe that helps you a little bit. Um. Wages are not counted as grace if they are done in order to bring about reconciliation with God. And then look at verse 5. But to him 
who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. All right, I feel like I don't need to keep qualifying this, but there is such misunderstanding about the gospel today that as soon as you begin to talk about works and the gospel, you're some sort of federal vision heretic or you believe in works righteousness. This, this, that argument needs to be put to, to rest. Um, the fact of the matter is Paul is not saying out of one side of the mouth work is not important and out of the other he is saying work is important. What he is saying is if you are relying upon your work to be justified, you cannot be justified by that work. Work proceeds from a heart of faith. Proceeds. It does not precede a heart of faith. It comes as a right natural fruit of one who has been regenerated. What comes first? The justification of the ungodly. That is why we can say that Abraham is not a model of work because he here in verse 5 is counted among the ungodly. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. You are the ungodly. I am the ungodly. We are all before God ungodly if we are not by his grace shown mercy and out of due sense of our, our misery of sin, we say, I come to Christ and only for him, only to him for help. We are all ungodly. And so it is not by works, but by faith. And that is where the rhetorical weight comes in as it relates to using Adam. Who is Abraham the father of? Paul is not making the ethnic argument here. He's not talking about blood. He's talking about works. He's talking about circumcision because that is what he has been talking about the whole book of Romans. Of whom is Abraham the father? Is he the father of the circumcised or also of the uncircumcised? And the way in which Abraham is the father of both circumcised and uncircumcised is if he is the father of those who by faith lay hold of the promises of God. And that is exactly who he is. This is how the covenant of grace began. And this is how the covenant of grace continues. What that means is you do not have to become a Jew to become a Christian. You do not have to be circumcised in the flesh. There is no system of law that you must keep to a certain degree in order to find yourself in the category of covenant keeper. You cannot do it. It is only by faith. And though works are a necessary fruit of faith, because no true saving faith is possible without works, that is, they are necessary for obtaining eternal life, works come after. They are the fruit. Now here, John Murray says, the description given in verse 5, him who justifies the ungodly is intended to set off the munificence, that just means the lavish or glorious, or the lavishness of the gospel of grace. The word ungodly is a strong one and shows the magnitude and extent of God's grace. His justifying judgment is exercised not simply upon the unrighteous, but upon the ungodly. 
Uh, parents, this is the case also with your children. We do not say in the baptism of our children that in their baptism they are somehow through water made ungodly. It is only by the washing of the Holy Spirit. And that somehow, because they've gotten wet, they are less ungodly than their neighbors. They are simply those who've received the covenant promises of God. Now, they're not little pagans. They're not outside of the visible church and the covenant that is given. But there is no presumption made that there's somehow less sin to forgive of our covenant children than those who are not. We are all broken and sinful. And so, Murray is right. God only comes to save ungodly persons. And the fact that Abraham was ungodly when he was called, the fact that we are ungodly when we are called, is evidence of God's life-saving mercy and grace, that he comes while we are still sinners. We must be made alive, we must be reborn, we must be awakened so that we might hear the call and then with that new will believe. Regeneration then precedes faith. And faith, connected to repentance, then justification. This is what we call the Calvinistic order of salvation and it is expressly clear in Scripture. Abraham believed in response to the promise made and this and nothing else is what was credited to him as righteousness. How was it credited? How was Abraham righteous before the coming of Christ? Because he believed in the Christ, though he did not see all that we see. He believed in the promise. How was he made able to believe? Well, by the Holy Spirit. And so we find this rhetorical, universal principle. Again, Murray writes, verse 5, is a general statement of the method of grace and is not intended to describe Abraham specifically. We have here, rather, the governing principle of grace. It is exemplified in the case of Abraham because he believed in accordance with that principle. Why Abraham? Because there were certain people that needed to hear about Abraham in the day of Paul's writing. And we need to hear that too. If you are looking to works done in the flesh to acquit you before God, you were looking in the wrong place. You will have nothing to find there. There will be no boast. This governing principle of grace, as Murray calls it, has always governed the manner in which a holy God relates to a sinful people. The first promise of salvation came to the man and woman in response to their very proximate, temporally, proximate rebellion at the tree in the garden. God's gracious response must and should be noted. Believe and be counted righteous. What is the testimony of Adam's faith? That when his wife conceived and bore a son, he named her Eve, which means mother of all living. Adam's life was grounded upon the hope of the promise. Cain did not believe because Cain did not give out of a heart of faith. Abel did. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Not because he brought an animal, because by faith he brought an animal. It is by faith, by faith, by faith. And so what we find here in these first five verses, and we'll find more of it in the next three verses. We'll get there when we look 
at the righteousness of God imputed to the great king of Israel is we find within these verses the doctrine of true religion. Having come to us from Holy Scripture, a perfect and glorious doctrine of salvation. Why is it perfect and glorious? Because it removes from you the requirement of your salvation that you cannot fulfill in the first place. Is that not good? To take out of your hands that which your hands cannot even perform. Parents, maybe you've done this with your children. You've given them a job they simply cannot do because they're not ready for it. This is a job we can never do. It is something that only God can do. And this is why Christ said to Thomas, what? Put your hands in my hands. Put your hands in my side. Because it is only through the work of Christ that our sins are forgiven. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord.